Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome again to AOA. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Here's what we'll talk about today. Uh, changing weather patterns, perhaps. We've, we've been talking about this for some time. Maybe a breaking down of this, these ridges that have kind of kept us the weather in place for so long, dry in the west, better in the east. But things are kind of changing a bit. Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub, will bring us up today. We'll talk markets with Steve Nicholson. Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst with Bravo AgriFinance. And we're going to talk with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association, as USDA has announced $26 million in investments under the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. We will talk with Robert about how this uh, can help get more E15 and E85 to motorists across the country and how this money will be used. That's coming up a little bit later in the program. But we're going to start things off, uh, quite frankly, with a conversation I hope we would not be having. We welcome back Brock Slaybaugh, National Rural Health Association Senior Vice President. Brock, thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I, After talking to you so often last year during the pandemic, I had hoped by now we would not be talking about... Uh, Hospital beds being filled and, and with COVID patients and, and challenges and issues facing our rural health system. But here we go again. Thanks for being with us. What's the latest? Well, thank you, Mike, for the invitation. And uh, I am indeed as well sorry to have to report to you. Um, we are in the midst of the fourth wave of the COVID pandemic. And uh, we are seeing infections that are hitting highs that have not been seen since the first week of February this year. So we're uh, looking into the middle of September with some uh, tremendously higher numbers of case rates, which will result uh, shortly thereafter in hospitalizations and unfortunately um, deaths. And so uh, this is uh, really uh, regrettable. We're seeing the case rates now for both cases and deaths in rural counties now exceeding the rates of those in urban counties. And uh, this has not, uh, this, the, these trend lines uh, separated just recently. They've been tracking pretty closely together until just about the last two or three weeks. So this is, of course, very concerning as well. So. As a result, this is putting a lot of stress on rural hospitals, uh, seeing their patient uh, hospitalizations increasing significantly, and more importantly, a very difficult time transferring patients to higher levels of care uh, in the urban areas. Uh, so that would include um, uh, transfers to places like uh, Kansas City or Wichita or Des Moines. Um, I heard a case yesterday where a patient in Abilene, Kansas, had to be transferred to Wisconsin uh, to be able to be taken care of for acute uh, COVID disease. So uh, it's getting pretty bad out there, Mike, I'm sorry to say. So obviously bed space is an issue. Um, other than that, do we ha- 
thinking back to how, when this all started, when the pandemic started, uh, there was such a need for equipment. Uh, do we have those needs filled now? Is it just a matter of space? and Or what is the biggest challenge you face right now? The, the biggest challenge right now, Mike, is that uh, it's both beds and personnel. We have much shorter staffs to be able to take care of this higher workload, uh, and it's increasing. And so you're, we're seeing instances, uh, particularly in the south, Louisiana, Alabama, where the National Guard and the, the United States military are being called up to fortify some of the personnel needs that these facilities are having. Um, there's just not enough people to take care of those that are sick. And uh, since the last surge back in the winter, uh, we've seen a large number of employees, nurses uh, particularly, uh, just leaving the profession. They, they just quit their jobs and uh, tried to find something else to work at that was not involved in terms of bedside patient care. When we uh, look at the, the situation as it is now, as you, as you described, it's, it's getting worse again, and the availability of space is such, so critical. Are we seeing hospitals having to stop elective procedures again, as we saw during the pandemic? Yes, Mike. Uh, a number of large hospitals in urban areas have uh, ceased operation for elective uh, surgeries and other related procedures. Uh, we've also seen uh, the instances where the emergency medical services are having to take care of patients longer in their ambulances while they're traveling around to different hospitals to try to offload the patients uh, that they have. Now, keep in mind, you may not have COVID, but what if you have a heart attack or a stroke? Mm -hmm. Uh, this is now impacting care that's non-COVID related, and this is, of course, very unfortunate. So there were things learned earlier in the pandemic. That experience uh, hopefully will help. But when you just face the challenges of, of staff shortages and, and bed space, that's hard to overcome. It's very hard to overcome. Uh, one of the bright spots now is that we do have, at this point, moment, plenty of personal protective equipment or PPE to keep our uh, staff safe. So that's uh, something a little bit different than what we had last winter and last year when we were facing severe PPE shortages. Uh, the other thing that we have in our arsenal of tools is uh, the vaccine, and uh, it is very successful in uh, reducing by 90 percent uh, the, the chances for hospitalization or death. So um, it's an opportunity for me to uh, pitch the uh, need to get vaccinated because that's one important way that we can help reduce the strain on an already overloaded workforce uh, that's trying to take care of sick patients. We know there are strong feelings both ways on the vaccine, but are you seeing vaccination rates going up? Yes, Mike. We had over a million vaccinations given just yesterday, and uh, uh, this is uh, ticking upward uh, from even several weeks ago. So I think the message is getting out there, and individuals are starting to see that this isn't just about a matter of maybe personal choice. Uh, this has an impact on the community now, and the community is what we're focused on in terms of uh, trying to keep everyone safe. 
And so our goal is to keep people from having to go to the emergency room uh, and be hospitalized in the first place. All right, Brock, thank you for the update. And it uh, sounds like we're going to be talking more here through the end of this year anyway as we uh, stay up, keep, try to keep up to date on this issue. Very serious one. Thank you for the, uh, for the overview, and we'll, we'll be in touch, okay? Thank you, Mike. Take care. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association. And again, conversations uh, similar to what we had uh, several months ago. And here we go again. So be safe, everyone. Be careful. Up next, we talk weather, weather patterns, weather systems with Dennis Toddy, Director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub, next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Before we get into what's in there for infrastructure, it's kind of set up to get the $1.2 trillion for roads and ports and waterways, bridges and broadband. To get that, they're going to have to pass another $3.5 trillion. As much as I understand the need for the physical infrastructure, if you add all that other on there, it seems like a pretty high price to pay. The worry with the economy is that we're actually going to be overheating rather than underheating. And a legitimate question to ask is, is this the time to keep adding trillions of dollars of spending on onto Americans? What normal people would do is they would say, great, we've got an area of consensus and agreement. Let's pass it. But no, what Washington, D.C. does is they say, we've got an area of consensus. Let's attach some controversial things onto it and make the passage of the consensus issue contingent upon the passage of a controversial portfolio. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Informing America's farmers and ranchers. That's our goal at AOA. Each weekday, you get an hour of the latest takes from people who know agriculture, the policymakers, and the people who have the inside scoop on what's happening behind closed doors. People who have their finger on the pulse of Washington and agriculture around the world. AOA is your daily source for all the information you need to stay in the know. Informing America's farmers and ranchers. AOA. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk it over with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, as we have talked over the summer, it was pretty much the same. Those systems were in place, ridges were there, and you knew where it was going to be hot and dry, and knew what areas would be getting some rain. It just kind of stayed that way. But now we're seeing some late-season rain start coming into some of those drier areas. Are we seeing a change in the in the systems? We Well, um, the first thing you run into, you know, as we're getting into starting to transition late summer, we start transitioning the fall, things start shifting in the climate. So you start, we'll eventually start getting more large-scale systems that hopefully will bring some more rainfall along with them. We have seen rainfalls that have fallen, some, some spotty heavy rainfalls, but that's been the problem is they still have been very spotty. So like when you go to look at the U.S. drought monitor, you see this kind of, you know, avant-garde looking kind of kind of view because you've got spots that are, that are very bad, spots that are really not too bad, and that's because we've had some places that have had some decent rainfalls and are not too bad overall and places that have missed out and have been really bad. Generally, like what you said first, is the case that this larger area in the northern plains down into Nebraska, northern Nebraska, northern Iowa, over Minnesota, is still there in large part. Some places it's worsened even. Other places we've had a little bit improvement, not so bad. What do you see now as we head into fall? Well, uh, oddly enough, the, the outlooks, you know, like, I'm going to contradict myself. I said things start to shift into the fall. Right now, the outlooks are largely very similar. The new outlooks were released yesterday from NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. Uh, so we've got the the outlooks for for September, and then the the you know the three month outlooks after that. And the warmer, drier consist conditions seem you know the the probabilities are not really strong, but that we stay warmer and drier across that northern plains area in September and then into the rest of the fall. Uh, with the probabilities of warmer being better than the probabilities of being drier. Uh, in the eastern part, central, the eastern part of the Corn Belt, uh, you know, more of the same, maybe not quite as wet as we have been, but uh, generally conditions are, are looking better over in that area. So uh, uh, this has some concern for us because we really need to start getting more wider spread rains in the northern plains area to start recharging some soil moisture. Again, you know, we have pockets that aren't too bad, but we need to get some of those larger systems that dump, you know, one or two inches over a day's period. We need to have about three or four of those over the next several months to 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 make conditions better. Um, eastern part of the Corn Belt will get our rains, and we we probably won't be too bad in that area. Usually, we're starting to think about frost dates and are, are they going to come early or not, and things like that. Uh, what do you see for that? Well, you know, we're still kind of early to be able to say much about frost or freeze dates. 
you are right that we start looking at uh, at when those can occur and say, you know, do we have crop susceptible to them at this point? Um, from a good or bad standpoint, those really warm conditions in the northern plains have pushed crop very quickly through their phenological phases or they're dry enough that things are starting to dry up already. So the area where we start being concerned about frost or freeze first, you know, Dakotas, northern Minnesota, Montana, uh, you know, if you look at our, we've got a corn growing degree day calendar. I was just looking at that this morning. Uh, you know, the degree day accumulations are well ahead of average. Our very warm temperatures have, have moved us along very quickly. So that even if you did have a little bit of an early freeze, uh, we're, you know, most of the crop is probably in pretty good shape and pretty safe overall. Um, you get down to the centrals, you know, say Iowa, Nebraska, and over the eastern part of the Corn Belt, the temperatures have not been as warm, so uh, crop is still ahead of average, just not quite as much ahead of average. So I think we're still okay there. Um, you know, some of the NAS reports at the you know, far southern part of the Corn Belt are putting corn and beans actually a bit behind, uh, but I think we're a long way away from any, any kind of a frost or freeze there. So short, the short answer is, don't see specifically when we could we could uh, see one coming, but I'm overly not concerned. The only concern I would have would be, you know, if you had to replant somewhere, uh, you know, you might have something that's a, a bit more at risk. Yeah, that eastern corn belt, not only has it received the moisture, but it has avoided the, the really hot, hot temperatures, especially during pollination. Didn't see a lot of the triple-digit temperatures we've seen in years past. And in some cases where the crop looks like it was speeding along, kind of slowed down because it wasn't as hot or it's overcast a lot. So uh, still has a ways to go to finish out. Uh, yeah, you're right. So, I mean, we, we do need to keep an eye on that. And, you know, I, I, I still don't think we're too concerned in the long run, but we do have to, to keep an eye on it overall. Uh, the only other thing I've been hearing about Eastern Corn Belt was there actually been a little wet in places. Some soybeans have been a little bit wet, so there can some some minor problems there and some uh, some disease issues due to that wetness. But mm -hmm. the Eastern Corn Belt has largely missed some of the heat and dryness issues we saw up in the Northwest. We're talking with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. So we hear, we're hearing now about La Nina following La Nina. Tell us about that. Ah, uh, yes. What we call a double, uh, inside term, double dip La Nina. And what this is, is when we're talking about La Ninas tend to occur over the winter. They're strongest and most impactful over the winter. Uh, so we did have La Nina impacting us, though it didn't really kick in too much until the latter part of the winter last year, uh, impacting us. Then the La Nina faded away. Um, now, if you look at sea surface temperatures down there, you see things starting to shift back towards the La Nina again, and the outlooks are that we will get back to La Nina conditions. So we're talking about colder than average sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern equatorial Pacific. Uh, so that is influencing our long-range outlooks into, into the, the winter. Um, and we call them double dip because we had one and then back-to-back -back years it went away and then La Nina came back again. These tend to be weaker than the first time around, um, so not a huge amount of impact. But if you do look at the, the, the longer-range outlooks into winter, 
what those tend to have in the northern plains you have a slightly increased chance of being cooler and a slightly increased chance of precipitation. Uh, Eastern Corn Belt has a slightly increased chance of precipitation kind of in the Ohio Valley area. Uh, Again, that is later winter also. Um, So that northern plains, uh, you know, the cold isn't as good, but they would take that additional precipitation, really need, uh, you know, that that winter precipitation would not be good for soil moisture, but it would be good for runoff into into ponds and, and dugouts. So that would be really helpful. The other thing we watch for during La Nina's is is warmer and drier conditions along the southern U.S., and those are definitely in the outlooks, too. So uh, it's not, you know, we're not betting the farm on on La Nina and and impacts of it, but it is giving us a a hint towards that direction. Hard to recover from a drought during the winter, isn't it? It it, it really is. Uh, You know, in the plains, like I said, you can get bigger snowfalls in the winter, that lead to runoff. So that goes into surface water. Doesn't help your soil moisture an awful lot. That's why we really, it's really important right now uh, that we get some rains in the fall. Uh, this has even led to some discussions we've had recently or some just coming up about multi-year droughts and that, you know, there is some susceptibility into in the northern plains, especially the western part of the plains, into multi-year droughts rather than individual year droughts. Not calling for one yet, but you know, where we are right now and what we need to, to, to see to improve it has us a little concerned. Um, you know, in, in the main part of the Midwest and Eastern Corn Belt, we tend not to have multi-year droughts. They tend to be more episodic, a, a part of a year or a year, and then they, they fade and go away. So that's something we're, we're watching closely. Uh, it, this would extend into next year. I, I, at this point, I, ex- I expect some drought conditions to, ex- uh, to extend into early next year just because it's going to be really hard to knock out that amount of, of, of uh, deficit we have in, in soil moisture and precipitation all across the northern plains. Yeah, real quick, always wonder when you see that drought, you know, expanding in the west, it, does it eventually, is it a natural pattern to creep towards the east or not? Um, actually, it's it's really not. It's just... You know, I, I tend to not even talk about drought moving because it's more of a, you know, at your location, are you getting rainfall or are you not getting rainfall? And it doesn't tend to move. It's just a matter of do you get rain or not get rain. Okay. Dennis, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you, and we'll stay in touch as we go through this fall. Appreciate it. You guys take care. All right. Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Up next, Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. As we talk markets, how they are reacting to the weather, to crop reports, uh, exports. We'll talk about all that coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast, Field posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top. 
top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. Traders are keeping a close eye on the weather maps and forecasts for next week. If these rains are better than expected, the downtrend that began this week will probably last for a little while. On the other hand, if the dry pockets miss this rain, traders will be dialing yield estimates down next week. On the Board of Trade this morning, September corn trading six and a half cent lower at 5.43 and a fraction. The December contract down eight and a fraction at 5.42 and three quarters. For soybeans, the September contract down five and a fraction at 1317 and three quarters the November contract down a nickel at 1315 and a fraction for wheat Chicago wheat September down three and a fraction at 724 and a fraction Kansas City wheat September down two and a half cent at 713 Minneapolis spring wheat September up a penny at 918 the December contract down a half a cent at 904 in cash cattle country a little more cash trade developed yesterday but activity still remains light for the week trade Thursday was much in line with what already transpired this week. Trade in the South has been running a dollar higher than last week at $122, with trade in the North averaging $2 higher at $200 even. Even though trade may come down to the wire again this week, it may be difficult to achieve anything more due to the pattern that has already been set. It appears both packers and feedlots may be waiting to see the numbers that will be released on the Cattle on Feed report Friday afternoon before making further decisions. For live cattle on the Board of Trade, the October contract down 12 cents at 128.02. The December contract down 27 at 133.70. In feeder cattle, the September contract down 22 cents at 162.67. October down 22 at 165.25. For lean hogs, the October contract $1.57 higher at 88.50. The December contract $1.15 higher at 81.70. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Let's talk it over with Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. Steve, good to talk with you again. Uh, when we see lower markets right now, what, what's that telling us? Yes, good morning, Mike. How are you today? Well, it's, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic uh, in the market. Obviously, there's several things happening right now that are kind of putting this market lower. Um, one is, of course, the weather. Uh, there's forecasts as we come across the northern plains that there's some good, good rain coming across there. I don't know that that's much help to the wheat crop or the corn crop. Uh, it's certainly probably more helpful to the bean crop that's up there at this point. Uh, the other piece, of course, is, is the pro-farmer tours this week. And, you know, the, the general tone, or we'll just say this is, and this is my perception, the tone coming out of that is that yields are a little bit better than people thought. Um, and so I think that's showing that the market is, is, is reacting to the supply side. Um, and that's why we see these markets kind of setting back here a little bit this week uh, on that, all those perceptions of better supply coming. But at the same time, and I think this is where the market, you know, it's, it's time of year we focus on supply. But when you start to set back or look back a little bit and think, okay, here's the supply side. We have at least a base now that we have the August numbers out um, to start with. But when you look at the demand side, think about what happened the last two weeks with soybeans. You know, two weeks ago, if we had this conversation, the market was kind of thinking, oh, boy, China hasn't bought beans, and on and on and on, and well, are they going to buy beans? They're just going to buy them from Brazil. And all of a sudden, there were, what, nine consecutive days, maybe it was even ten consecutive days, that China had bought U.S. soybeans. And so the market, you know, that demand side is building, and I think we have to not, we, the market will come back to the demand side once we kind of have a little better handle on production and go, boy, the demand side is really good. And all the work that we've done, in our baseline, and we're just actually kind of updating our 10-year baseline, you know, in the past couple of weeks. That's certainly the, 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 the story coming out of that is that the demand side continues to be extremely robust and that the supply side, while is is improving, is not keeping up with that demand. And where do you find the acres to do that? So there is a lot of things hitting the market right now, but the fact is we're still at good prices for producers um, that we would not have seen you know, we just started to see a, get a taste of that a year ago now. Yeah, so let me ask you my question of the week. I've asked this of all the okay. market analysts I've had on, so I okay. want to get your take okay. on this. You think think back to a year ago. Uh, the rallies was starting in August, and we're going into harvest, and farmers were seeing higher prices. Many of them sold, uh, and then saw the prices continue to go up, and they many regretted selling so soon and said, well, wow, wish I'd have held on. Does that... Yeah. That could I impact them this year. They remember that, so maybe they tend to maybe hold on. And would that be a mistake this year? You think? Yeah, I think it's you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the premise. You're going, we're human nature. Remember what happened last year. And think, boy, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Um, and I don't. You know, I, I'm not in the camp. I think that we could see a situation where prices could go dramatically higher unless unless the weather really gets bad as we go forward, or we get that proverbial early frost. So we're at high levels, and I think we have to think about, you know, what is the upside potential here? You know, if we have something go wrong, the upside potential is pretty big. But when you look at, and I'm looking at the Dees corn chart now, you know, the Dees corn chart, the upside is about 625. We're bidding, you know, we're today at 540. So could you, you know, is there maybe 75 cents up there? Sure. But I always go back, and you know where I'm going to go here. I always go back to the thing, where are we today, and where can you p 
put in profitable margins to make sure you can farm for another year? If the answer to that is yes, then it doesn't really matter. And I meant I'm going to say that in some ways. It, it just to you know kind of couch it though, you know whether the price goes up or not, it is not as important as whether you can lock in profitable margins for the long run. And we've talked about this before. You will know. And you know, think about what's happening in wheat, and think about how wheat can change overnight because the weather could change in, in you know, the Black Sea or or Australia or something like that. You can look at profitable margins this year, and you can look at profitable margins from this year on the in the market, and you need to take advantage of that when you can. Typically, we see harvest pressure right we we see prices right. go yeah. down during harvest La- last right. year being exactly. an exception of course uh do you, yeah. do you expect that this year well i don't expect that quite as much this year um you know you look a couple different reasons and it goes back to one the robust demand side you know china has been holding off and china as many of us know they're price buyers and so if we do see a little setback and we've seen that you know we've seen over the last couple of weeks you know, China has, has, has dropped into the market to buy products. So I think the demand side is going to be robust. It's going to hold up this market from really falling apart. The other thing is, is the basis. And if you look at new crop basis levels across, now there's been a lot of volatility here lately, which has been really interesting to me. But when you look at new crop basis levels, they are above levels you would typically see for harvest, you know, harvest bids. So that tells me a couple things. One is the demand is robust. And the other side is, that the merchandiser on that side doesn't have much book on and is also worried about supply, making sure he can get he or she can get supply. So I'm not looking for this. And you're right. Typically, we see a pretty big dip at harvest. We will see some of that this year, but I think the robust underlying demand is going to keep that from, you know, really falling out of bed. Talking with Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Rombo AgriFinance. Here's the other thing I've been asking this week, Steve. With commodity prices yep. strong across the board, so you got a lot of competition for acres. How do we see much of a bump in corn or bean acres with sorghum, cotton, wheat, all all <laughs> in their bidding pretty strongly for acres? Yeah, that, that is the, that's the $64 billion question. As I say, we're looking at our baseline this week, and we just have kind of finalized some of the basic numbers, and that is the problem we've been wrestling with as well. Not only just the demand side, but the acreage side. We do see when we look at 22, and I'll just kind of give you a a little bit of a preview behind the curtain, we're seeing a modest increase in acres for next year, and we're going to be, when we look at corn and soybeans, we're going to be closer to 181, 182 million acres on 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 our baseline. That's that would be a record, but it goes back to exactly what you said: is there is so much competition for acres. You know, wheat needs acres, cotton needs acres, sorghum needs acres, rice needs acres, and 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 they're just we are constrained both through the United States by the amount of tillable land. It's also the case when around the world, and we, and I, we did this a lot in the renewable diesel, doing some research in that area, um, particularly in the in the context of canola, and you know. What we're finding is that Canada doesn't have more acres of canola, very or limited. Australia doesn't have more acres of canola because of rotations. And that's the other thing here, both in the states. You have rotational, you have to rotate crops because of weed pressure or insect pressure or disease pressure, whatever, for that purpose. You know, the only crop that you kind of see on a continuous basis is corn. Um, but so that's the other constraint is we have to have those rotational acres. And so 
you can't see this huge search to 95 million acres of soybeans because of the rotational desire needs. Same thing with wheat. You, you, there is a baseline of wheat we need for rotational purposes. So it is a huge issue, um, and without a continued increase or some sort of change in genetics primarily to really see yields for wheat and soybeans in particular go up, um, to matter. I think that's that's the big kind of the next big frontier we have to think about is where do we get the yield push going forward? Might set up more of a scenario for that uh, more wheat acres than you come in with double crop soybeans on you know right behind it. That is, yeah, and and that's and that's an interesting point. And, and one of the points we actually made in the last seven years was that we need to produce more revenue per acre, double cropping being in those regions. And, and as you well know. Um, that southern Illinois area, you know, is a good area for that. But surprisingly this year, when you look at the double crop wheat, primarily wheat and soybeans, it was 4.6%. I think that's the correct number, was 4.6% this year versus 4.4% last year. And you're going, here here was a perfect opportunity to pick up more revenue per acre, and you didn't do more, you know, there wasn't more double crop acres. So there is... And, and I will say one other thing. There's a lot of discussion in seed circles about cover crops and double crop. Is can we produce some cover crops, particularly oilseed side, that we could harvest? Is you know actually produce three crops per year? So there is a lot of discussion around that, and there's a lot of research going on in that area uh, to improve that. So those are things in the pipeline that would help us on the acreage side that we need in right now need desperately. It just shows how dramatically things have changed for so long. We've talked about <laughs> burdensome stocks and supplies. Now we're trying to figure out how to grow more. That's right. And it just I think the amazing thing to me is is the robust demand globally and and just this, this you know, particularly when you look from a biofuels perspective, what renewable diesel, uh, obviously what biodiesel and ethanol have done, um, to that, that we just don't have enough to meet all the needs for all the people. And and on top of that, we haven't even talked about, despite COVID and all the things that are happening, think about all the things that are changing globally as incomes rise, people like to eat those more animal protein. They, they eat better. And so that's a demand for more feed. It's a demand for more food. And we don't we it's that is going to be the challenge going forward and do we have enough supply to meet that at a price that people can afford and those are all challenges that we're we're facing right now and how do we get around that i think that's the you know in some ways there's a lot of there's going to be a a discussion again of that food fuel environment is all of that sustainable so that we can feed enough feed people around the world and that's that is our challenge every single day right now all right steve good to talk with you thanks good to talk to you mike take care have a good weekend you too steve nicholson with robo agrifinance stay with us you're listening to aoa hi this is mike adams you're listening to aoa adams on agriculture don't go away more adams on agriculture coming right up As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. 
And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Lance Zimmerman with Cattle Facts. There's good prices on the board right now for cattle producers if they're feeding corn. It could be a little bit of a tricky situation right now, but as you alluded to, there still is plenty of opportunity out there for profitability if you're smart about your marketing. The ruling cattle feeding, right, is usually by your profitability, uh, both on the corn and the cattle side. And the last 18, 12 to 18 months have been tough on, on a corn position for cattle feeders. Been great if you're the one grazing the corn, right? We're in a situation right now with corn basically sitting there in the, the lower end of the $5 range. For a lot of producers, that's probably an area some are taking some positions on, at least trying to establish a, a floor price, you know, making sure they at least have some corn secured right now. Um, and we'll see what happens as we near harvest time, see if we put in some harvest time lows. But hopefully, the worst of the weather threats are behind us on the corn side. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player for the Indianapolis Colts. Becoming a running back was no easy task for me. But it's nothing compared to what my amazing mom faces every day. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14 years old. Yet she's always there for me, every step of the way, despite our own battles. And the Muscular Dystrophy Association is there 
for my mom. At their 150 care centers across the U.S., MDA is the leading organization in research and care for kids and adults with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related neuromuscular diseases. Their research is helping find cures and save lives. Watching my mom go through her daily struggles and the care she receives from MDA has made me determined to help find a cure for neuromuscular disease. That is why I support MDA, and that's why I'm so grateful to others who do too. Join me and learn more at helpmda.org today. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. USDA has announced $26 million in investments under the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program, and this will help get the greater availability of higher blend renewable fuels out into the marketplace. Let's talk about that with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, this would seem like some welcome good news. It is good news. We we have been working on the HBIT program for well over a year now. Application kind of window that of that first round closed about a year ago in a $100 million program, and this takes us a little north of $66 million that's been doled out by USDA to date. How is that money used? How does that translate into more uh, ethanol available at the pump? Well, this program's for ethanol and biodiesel, just to clarify, but for the ethanol side specifically, it's gone to help some of the terminal operations to make sure they have the equipment needed for technology in some cases. It has been used to buy some underground storage tanks, but most of it has been used to replace the dispensers that the consumers actually pay at the pump with and dispense that fuel into their vehicle. So it's it's helping uh, reduce the, the burden of the you know getting into the higher blends in some cases that that infrastructure does cost more as we all know and this reduces that burden and gets more retailers to embrace it and try it try it out will a retailer you think be more willing now to expand to e15 or will the cloud shall we say of whether e15 is going to be allowed to be sold next summer or not will that keep them from going ahead and making the investment well, I think because especially those that are receiving money through this USDA program, I think plans will, will move forward. The, the, the good thing about this infrastructure is, in reality, anything can go through that dispenser and through that hose. So if for some reason the E15 situation is not resolved and they are in a conventional gasoline market come next June, uh, they could simply either stop selling it, uh, replace it with a different product for those summer months, so I, I think they'll still take the free money. Uh, in some cases, it helps them catch up on credit card uh, requirements the, uh, that have been passed down this last decade and just have new technology and new equipment. So does a retailer then have to sign up for these funds, request them, apply for them? How does that work? Yeah, we've been helping with, with some funds from the National Corn Growers Association these last two rounds. Uh, helping them even write the grant applications. You know, these most of these small retailers, they're hoping that someone shows up for work and there's fuel in the ground and the power's on. That's that's the 
that's a good day in many of these uh, stations' world. And so what we did was try to eliminate the that uh, that barrier to entry and, and help them with those, in some cases, 50-, 60-page applications. And now they're going. Many of them are going through their environmental compliance to make sure that all of those uh, check or those boxes are checked as well, and we're helping them through that. So it's been a long process for many. It's it's kind of an unknown type of approach. They've never dealt with grants in the past, especially with the federal government. So we just tried to minimize that headache for them and make sure they can have access to that money as well. Yeah, that applying for grants that that's a that's an art form, a skill set all to its own, isn't it? Well, there's people to make a living doing nothing else. So there, there's no doubt that there is a science to it. Um, and there is, you know, if you're doing several stations at once or working with several companies at once, you can you can glean information from others and, and help speed up that process. But for a one-off retailer to do it is definitely a heavy lift. Is the E15 footprint growing across the country? Are we getting more retailers offering it? We definitely are. I, I, the, in this case, the USDA had teased this program for a number of months, so I actually think it slowed progress a little bit initially, just because if, if you knew free, if you wanted to do E15 and or E85, and you knew free money for that was coming, you were going to wait and see and, and make sure mm-hmm. you could capitalize on that. But now that floodgate is starting to open. Uh, right now, just like anything, uh, retail fuel equipment is backed up. Supply is limited. And we just I was just at a retail location yesterday in Iowa where they were talking about tanks are a year out now. Uh, so it, it, mm-hmm. the, the supply backup has, has affected nearly every industry, but the fuel retailer side of things is no different. So it'll all come to fruition. It's just going to take a little more time than expected. And where are we on the labeling issue so we stop scaring people away from E15? Well, that rulemaking is currently... Uh, awaiting uh, EPA's final blessing. There was a proposal out uh, earlier this year, uh, teased all the way back into the Trump administration, to kind of change the labeling approach to it, maybe not make it orange and black, maybe not make it the largest label required of any fuel to minimize that, that scare tactics that have been put in place. And we're hopeful that we go back to the traditional style of labeling that is black and white at the pump, and make sure that consumers, you know, will read the label versus seeing it's a bad thing just by the color alone. And Robert, is it important for motorists when they're getting gas to thank a retailer that is offering higher ethanol blends and those that aren't to ask them to do so? Yeah, it's kind of like our politicians, right, Mike? It's, if, if you're supporting it, great. Thank them. Uh, tell them you'll be back for more. If not, then ask them to support it. Because a lot of times when we talk to retailers, you know, if, if they're on the other side of the fence, they say that no one's ever asked for it. And that could be true. That, that's very possible. But they may not know that they could save a, a nickel or dime a gallon if E15 was available or in some cases a dollar a gallon if E85 was available when they have a flex fuel vehicle. So I, I think it, it goes along with the education process, but I encourage everyone in agriculture listening today that if your local retailer doesn't offer please ask them to so when we call they've heard from someone and if your local retailer does offer it make sure you thank them for it it's important and they they let us know they hear from you all right robert good to talk with you thank you thank you mike all right take care robert white vice president industry relations for the renewable fuels association that wraps it up for today and for another week thank you so much for joining us 
and hope you all have a great and safe weekend and join us again on Monday right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.